Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club, uh, a podcast in which I'm reading through all the works of HP Lovecraft, looking for, uh, you know, his his overall philosophy and and to hopefully contribute something to the the conversation that's that's currently going on about Lovecraft's views on on race and history and all that interesting stuff. People all over are, are digging into his letters, digging into his stories again, reading them with new eyes, rewriting Lovecraftian mythology um, in some of their new new stories. It's all exciting time to, to get into this stuff. So uh, this is a, a reread project, and hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll be able to contribute something, uh, even if just a little bit. Um, I really am going to appreciate Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, the the text I'm looking at now, this is actually the third episode on Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, so you might want to go back and listen to the last two. Um, we're halfway through the story. We've seen uh, Randolph Carter go through various adventures. He went to the moon. He got involved with a war between the cats and the Zoogs, was brought down to the underworld, uh, met uh, Richard Upton Pinkman, the painter. Uh, who has turned into a ghoul. He's helped him get through the kingdom of the Gugs. So all these great adventures that uh, Carter went on. At the halfway point, though, the story starts to get real and it starts to really move towards its climax. Um, now, there's been a couple like mysterious groups that are kind of hanging around Carter that become more important here. One is, well, the people who kidnapped him brought him to the moon. The people of the Black Galley. They turn out to be the men from Lang. Um, so there's those. There's also the faces on the rock that that look like the people from the city of of Inganok, uh, which is an Onyx city, and they're the ones who trade in Onyx. So they're also kind of a, a, a maritime force. Pretty much everyone here is involved with some kind of maritime stuff, at least the human characters or the humanoid characters. Um, or they're at war with someone. Um, it's, it's actually a, kind of an interesting model of like the 18th century Atlantic, I think, how... You know, there's constant war between these different forces, um, and at the same time, there's all this commerce and trade and slavery. Slavery is a theme in this story as well. So a lot of interesting historical allegories here. I don't know how conscious Lovecraft was of those, but we know that he thinks a lot about Atlantic history. And we know that really from the next story we're going to look at, which I'll probably do over five episodes that time, which is the case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, which is all about Atlantic history. And it's it's one of my favorite, if not my if not the my most favorite Lovecraft story. So I don't think it's accidental at all here. Um, Lovecraft's too smart for all this to be accidental. In fact, evidence of that shows up right away in the part I want to look at today. So where, anyways, I was saying I I'm I'm growing to like this story because of its if it's a maritime focus. It really does seem to be a story of the Atlantic. That's 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 my feeling now. I, I was frustrated by this story for quite a while, um, but this is, I think, the third time I've went through it in the last year or so, and I think it's it's got a lot to, to teach us. Um, all right, so where we left off, he went to Cellarface, because uh, face is, um, well, he was... I think he was told by the cats after he won the battle with the cats and helped the cats win their victory over the Zoogs. He was told by them to go to Cellarface to find these people of Ignorok, this other nearby city, right? So it's like you go to another port city, go to the taverns, talk to the people, look around. And 
he's already been there. He's already been to Cellarface, and he, and we saw in the last episode how he arrived at Cellarface, and now he go he goes he actually talks to the like the lead cat of Cellarface, this great city, and he's like, oh, you want to see Karanis? Well, he's not really here anymore. He's moved off into a country estate, which he has made to look just like Cornwall, and so that's where we'll pick up. Uh, I've been breaking up the Dream Quest into various vignettes. Um, in the last couple of episodes, we just looked at nine different like chapters, almost mini chapters throughout the book. I think the same thing goes on all the way through the story. So the next vignette is this meeting Karanis. Uh, Karanis, of course, is a character, not the first character from previous Lovecraft stories. We met a character, Atal, from the Outer Gods. Uh, but this is another meeting of of an important character from one of his early stories, Karanis. Now, if you remember the story of Selephus, this guy, Karanis, uh, that's his name only in the Dreamlands. We never get his name on Earth. He dreams. He wants to stay in the Dreamlands. He wants to find the city of Selephus. It's got some parallels to Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and I, I think that's why he shows up here. He's searching, you know, he's searching for his ideal city. He finally finds it, but only at the cost of dying in the real world, so he gets stuck there. But he becomes the king of Selephus. But when we meet him here, he's recreated this Cornish village, the child, the village of his childhood. And he doesn't want to be the king of Selephus anymore. He's disappointed. So, well, Selephus and Karanis is a warning then to Carter. In fact, it's explicitly given as a warning by Karanis to Carter to say, stop looking for Kdath. You won't be happy. You will just long for your childhood. Now, this par- this has a very interesting parallel with the conversation he has at the climax of the novel, as we'll see in the next episode, with with Nalar Hotep, because he will say something similar, like tempt him with his youth or return to the youth. So I wonder if Karanis is somehow, you know, where his loyalties might lie entirely. We don't spend much time with him, but there's the fact that he's another he becomes an obstacle on the path, not a assistant. Because there's a lot of assistance here. A lot of people want to help him. They maybe not know that much, but they can help him a little bit. Like the ghouls, they can help him get this far or whatever. This guy, he seems to want to stop him on his quest. The other thing, what's so seductive here about this is it's like an Anglo-Saxon get-together. It's it, We talked so much in this podcast about Lovecraft's like Anglo-Americanism and his obsession with this Anglo-American identity, this love of the English and this Mother England stuff he wrote during World War One. He's really obsessed with this Anglo-American uh, kind of nonsense, this idea of a recreation of a, of a North Atlantic, transatlantic culture, right? Totally ignoring the actual diversity of, of America. Um, I mean, he doesn't ignore it because he's kind of obsessed with diversity and immigration. But in his image of this, it's kind of artificial. Um, but here he gets a chance to kind of recreate it. So Karanis is like, you know, you can create, you know, you can just stay here. You can create your own little New England and we'll be Anglo-Saxons together, right? One from England, one from one from, one from Cornwall, one from New England. You can kind of have this restoration. It's actually quite racial racial here. In fact, Karanis picked people from Selefis to populate his Cornwall town who looked English, who had these Anglo-Saxon features. And then he even tries to teach them the, the like the dialect of Cornwall and things. It's really bizarre and really kind of weird. Um, but here's some of what uh, he's told. Um, so there were friends. Karanis and Carter were friends in the old waking days. 
quote, and knew well the lovely New England slopes that had given him birth. At the last, he was very certain the secret would long only for the early remembered scenes, the glow of Beacon Hill at evening, the tall steeples and winding hills of quaint Kingsport, the hoary gambrel roofs of ancient witch-haunted Arkham, and the blessed miles of meads and valleys where stone walls rambled and white farmhouse gables peeped out from the bowels of Verdun. These things he told Randolph Carter, but still the seeker held to his purpose, end quote. So it doesn't work, but he's trying to seduce him with this image of his youth, saying, you will yearn for New England. I was disappointed. The dreamlands disappointed me, and I can't go back because I'm dead in the waking world. But you're not, and you, you can go back. Right? Maybe Kadath will be a disappointment. So this is a very important section of the story in which we get this warning. Um, but uh, he quickly moves on. He doesn't stay too long with Karanis after this. The seduction of this Anglo-American unity is kind of failed. Right, So Carter goes on his way with his quest instead of just being English with, with another... English guy, I guess. It's a bit weird, I think. It's, it shows Lovecraft's obsession with this Anglo-Americanism. Um, but then anyways, he gets these, um, these sailors arrive. Um, and Carter will eventually leave and go sailing again, going to the next town. This time he's going to Ingranach. Um, he gets on one of these, these more suspicious ships um, by claiming to be an onyx miner and he wants to go to Ingranach because they mine onyx that's that's their thing their street is made of onyx they sell it a lot you know we've seen evidence of this before um now he also sees here the the slant-eyed sailor that he saw earlier in the story you know, the slant-eyed merchants the slant-eyed merchant he becomes a character in this part of the story he's he's one of these agents of of the outer gods that are either trying to capture carter or lead him astray it's not quite clear at this point, but eventually the climax of the novel is the confrontation with with one of the gods, with Nairal Upatep. Nairal Upatep. I can never pronounce it properly. Sorry. Um, anyways, we get a little bit more of sailor legends and stories and all that good stuff, which we're sort of used to here. Um, but he eventually goes off to sea with these these people and he tries to get stories about Leng now now he's kind of moving on to this he knows he has to go to Leng eventually and Ingrinach is just like a path on the way to to Leng he knows he needs to get there but he asks about that and people don't really talk about that part of it they, they don't talk about this desert and, and 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 Leng or the people from Leng they talk about other stories but eventually um, a lot of this is actually about onyx mining and things like that So, on later days, they talked to the quarries in which Carter said he was going to work. There were many of them, for all the city of Iganach was built on onyx, while its great polished blocks of it were traded in Rinar, Orthrogon, and Celeface, and at home with the merchants of Thrar, Ilknek, and Catherdone for the beautiful wares of these fabulous ports. And far to the north, almost in the cold desert whose existence the men of Iganach did not care to admit, there was an unused quarry greater than all the rest, from which had been hewn in forgotten times such prodigious lumps and blocks that the sight of the, the, their chiseled vacancy struck terror in all who behold it. Who had mined these incredible rocks and whether they had been transported, no man may say, but it was thought best not to trouble that quarry round which such unhuman memories might conceivably cling. 
So again, it's a warning not to go there, not to go to that part of of the dreamlands. But that's where he's heading. That's where their character wants to go. Um, uh, eventually, they arrive at this city, Ignorok, the city of Onyx, the city where the palace is Onyx, the streets are made of Onyx, everything is Onyx, because that's, that's what they have. They're post-scarcity in Onyx, and so that's what the city is built of. But we're reminded that we are, are in a slave society. This isn't our first memory. There were slaves on the moon. There was um, slaves... Uh, in various towns, there are slavers. Some of these galleys are slavers, um, but it's really connected to Carter's ultimate quest. Quote as quote. This is a this is all from the Klinger version um, of this. They annotated Lovecraft. Quote as the ship rode past the great vessel breakwater into the harbor, the lesser noises of the city grew manifest, and Carter saw the slaves, sailors, and merchants on the docks. The sailors and merchants were of the strange-faced race of the gods, but the slaves were squat, slant-eyed folks, said by rumor to have been drifted somewhere across or around the impassable peaks from the valleys beyond Leng. Now, we've met the slant-eyed slave types before. They were the people who kidnapped Carter and sent him to the moon, saved by the cats, right? And then you got the people of Ignarch, which have that face of the gods that he found on that mountainside, right, carved on the side of the mountain. So there's these two different kind of suspicious races here at the end. And, you know, we can never escape Lovecraft's racial imagination. It's, it's there all the time. Um, so this is kind of another section of the story is this arrival, this trip to Ignac and, this, and the arrival there, right? Then we get to the city itself, uh, the next sort of story here. Um, Ignac, um, this Onyx city, and... Here, he's taken around. He's kind of given a tour of the place. Um, now, he sees the slant-eyed merchant that he saw before in Dilithaline. I don't even know if I mentioned that earlier. I think I forgot how important he was at the time. But definitely, we talked about the suspicious people in these um, different merchant towns that he ran into. Uh, so he's being followed, essentially, by the slant-eyed merchant. But the ship captain, the one that took him there, takes him around. Now, Carter's still posing as someone who's going to be a miner, right? So... He asks about the mines, which mines are open, where to go to work and all that. But he does give him a tour of the, of the town. Um, and he goes first to this, this temple, this Onyx temple, which he's not allowed to go to, right? And there's another suspicious person here, this uh, priest who wears this yellow mask. I think it's a yellow mask. I wrote it down here somewhere. A veiled or, so, or sometimes this, this other guy called the Veiled King. He sees a procession of priests going to the temple, but he's not allowed into the temple. Um, only a few are those who hint that the priests in the mask and hooded columns are not human priests. So it's suggested these aren't human, but he can't get into the temple. Um, then he's taken to the Onyx Palace, and he's also not allowed to, to enter there. there. He's not allowed to go to this Onyx Palace. So he's kind of taken around, but it's kind of pointless because he's taken to these places he's not able to visit or go into. Finally, he's taken to a place that's more practical and more, you know, more useful for him. And that's the taverns again. Once again, the, the, the merchant town taverns are such a key locale in this story. Um, so he takes them to the, the north quarter of town where there's the taverns, where the yak merchants and the onyx miners hang out. The, the yaks are... Kind of what people take to these mines, I guess, and what carry the onyx back to the city. 
or whatever. So he's able to get all the rumors and the knowledge about the mining operation in the city. And so he's all ready to, to um, go there. They also, though, warn about Leng. Quote, they had fears of fabled emissaries from around the mountains where Leng is said to lie and of evil presences and nameless sentinels far among the scattered rocks. And they whispered also that the rumored sh Shangtak birds are no wholesome things, it being indeed the best that no man ever truly saw one. For the fabled father of Shantaks in the King's Dome is fed in the dark. So another monster, we could hear the Shantak birds. Um, so the next part of the story then is he gets a yak, he rents a yak, um, and goes to visit the mines. He goes into the mines. Um, now on the way to the mines, he passes a city called Urg. He doesn't see much there. It's just another kind of locale that he has to pass. But finally, he arrives at these onyx, um, onyx mines. Now, there's a bunch of details here of the paths he's following. He's trying to get deeper into the mines, um, looking around. He's ultimately looking for a path to, to Lang, but he knows that these mines are kind of on the path to, to Lang, where he wants to go. Um, and he follows this this path and eventually the the yeah kind of panics and comes goes running and carter has to chase him and eventually he gets kind of stuck between this this yak who's running away and on the other side the, the slant-eyed merchant who has followed him here i was getting a little ahead of myself because for a while he's been he, he's chasing the yak and he feels he's being chased as well so it's kind of a exciting little action scene um He's chased by some kind of unseen thing that he can't totally identify as he's chasing the, the yak. Lovecraft writes, quote, Carter's pursuit of the yak now became a flight from an unseen thing, for though he dared not glance over his shoulder, he felt that the presence behind it could be nothing wholesome or mentionable. His yak must have felt, heard or felt it first, and he did not like to ask himself whether it followed him from the haunts of men or it floundered up out of the black quarry pit. Right? Now it turns out that this is going to be the the, the slant-eyed merchant who is following him because in the next kind of part of the story where he counters the, the Shantag birds that he was warned about, um, you know, obviously since he was warned of it, he's going to have to run into them eventually. So this is what he gets stuck between. He gets stuck between the birds on one hand and the birds have this kind of scaly features that are like scaled, not feathered, kind of, kind of creepy. Um, and the slant-eyed merchant who has followed him here. And then he's basically captured and kidnapped by, by the slant-eyed merchant. And he guides him up to ride the skilled bird. So he has to get to ride the sanic bird. And we get a beautiful section of the story. It goes on for a few pages here where he just sees the whole scenery, right? Now, in terms of the story, it allows him to kind of quickly get to towards Lang, kind of speed along the quest on the way to Lang. But it does allow, also allow for him to, to get this uh, overview of the whole region. Quote, far above the clouds they flew till at last there lay behind them, those fabled summits which the folks of Ignac had never seen and which lie always in the high vortices of gleaming mist. Carter beheld them very plainly as he passed below and saw upon their topmost peak strange caves which made him think of those of on Negrak. He did not question his captors about these things when he noticed that both the man, man and the Horse heavy Shantak appeared oddly fearful of them, hurrying past nervously and showing great tension until they were left far in the rear. The Shantak now flew lower, revealing beyond the canopy of clouds 
gray barren plain where at a great distance shone little feeble fires. As they descended there appeared at intervals, lone huts of granite and bleak stone villages whose tiny windows glowed with pallid light. And there came from those huts and villages a shrill droning of pipes and a nauseous rattle of crotala, which proved at once that Ignax people are right on their geographic rumors. For travelers had heard such sounds before, and know that they float only from that cold desert plateau which healthy folk never visit, that haunted place of evil and mystery, which is Lang. So it's really great. It's, it's uh, kind of a, a great section of the story. But it also sets up that there's these bad guys in villages here, which is going to be an important plot point a little bit uh, later in the story. So we get this wonderful scenery. So the Shantak bird episode is basically gets captured by the slant-eyed merchant. And he rides the Shantak bird. And this leads us to our, our next uh, vignette, our next part of the story, which is the arrival at Lang. Um, he finally arrives at Lang. Um, and it's pretty clear that the slant-eyed merchant wants to take him back to his master. Carter seems to figure this out finally, taking him to Narla Opatep. Um, but he sort of gets away. Um, he takes him into this monastery first, though. This is an old monastery in Lang. And he sees these frescoes of Lang's history. Now, if you, when you read this, you immediately begin to think of like the nameless city. You think of the Ma Mountains of Madness. You even think to case of, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward to a degree. A lot of Lovecraft stories in which the mound has the same thing to a certain degree. Um, which we'll look at later. That's one of the revisions. But a lot of stories, he uses this device of you tell the story of a civilization in frescoes or in carvings on the wall or something. And, you know, it's kind of unbelievable that someone could just glance at a few pictures and get the whole history of a civilization. But he uses this quite a lot uh, in his stories. Um, I know this doesn't work because I'm teaching art history now. And you could show, like I'm doing early christian early medieval history art history now and so you'd show like some late antiquity uh, uh release sculpture continuous narrative release sculpture sculpture that might tell the story of the life of jesus or or something and you show it to students if they don't know anything about jesus they can't make heads or tail of the pictures my students from china don't know the story of jesus so i have to explain to them what these different episodes in the life of jesus are you know, like this is raising Lazarus, this is entering Jerusalem, whatever. They they don't know that. So it's pretty unbelievable that someone could just see pictures from a totally foreign culture and somehow deduce their meaning without some kind of cultural background. Right? That's what I think anyways. But once again, Lovecraft uses this device here and he sees the frescoes that tell the history of Lang. He doesn't dwell on it too much. It's just a couple of paragraphs, but um, we get it and... I'll read a bit of it. Through these archaic frescoes, Lang's annals stalked, and the horrid, hooved, and wide-mouthed almost humans danced evilly amidst forgotten cities. There were scenes of old wars wherein Lang's almost humans fought with the bloated purple spiders of the neighboring vales, and there were scenes also of the coming of the black galleys from the moon and the submission of Lang's people to the polypus and amorphous blasphemies that hopped and floundered and wriggled out of them. These slippery, grayish-white blasphemies, they worshipped the gods nor ever complained when scores of their best and fattest males were taken away in the black galleys. The monstrous moon beasts made their camp on a jagged island in the sea, and Carter could tell from the frescoes that this was none other than the lone nameless rock he had seen when sailing to Ignorak. The gray cursed rock which Ignorak's seamen shun, and from which howl, vile howlings reverberated through the night. 
So this is ancient history in the frescoes, but it's still true. It's still true that the moon beasts and their slaves, these men from Lang, are still on this island, right? So it's a very useful fresco that, that, that's going to set up the next major, I guess, plot point in the story. Um, now, this is he's still being captured when he's looking at these frescoes. Then he meets a yellowed masked man. Um, I think this is the second yellow mask. I think the priest uh, in the Onyx City also had a yellow mask. But um, they, they have a conversation with the merchant, this high priest. And then Carter like attempts his escape. And he gets away. You know, he's able to get away, but he gets lost in the dark in some room. He's not, he tried to go back through the fresco room, but eventually gets lost. And he finds his way down and he descends into, into Lang, um, underground. He kind of goes back into the depths and he finally finds himself in the ruins of, of a new city. The ruins of, what's the city called? Sarkomond. Sarkomand, that's this new city he's in. So, you know, we kind of got another yet vignette, another kind of stage on the quest that he goes into after he escapes from Ling, uh, or after he escapes from the slant-eyed merchant in the monastery in Ling. He able gets away, but he gets just deeper into Ling and to the city of Sarkomand. Um, and now the question is where to go, um, really what to do. Um, he's lost. He doesn't really know where he is. He sees this glow ahead of him and he approaches this glow and he sees that it's one of these galleys from the moon, right? So it's like the bad guys. It's the guys who kidnapped him before. And he sees the other Denzians of the moon. Again, these like moon beasts and these uh, uh, these men from Lang, these slaves. So, uh, but he also knows he's close to the gate of the ghouls um, because this was actually hinted at, you know, earlier in the story. It's Lovecraft's not being lazy here. He actually set it up earlier that the ghouls knew a kind of a path to Lang. They said you can go straight to Lang or you can go to through the kingdom of the Gugs. You know, you think Love, uh, Carter could have saved time going to Lang directly, but instead, you know, I guess Lovecraft wanted to explore more of, of the dreamland. So he had him go uh, through the kingdom of the Gugs back to the Enchanted Forest. So this was set up, but he, he knows that this go, this door to the ghouls must be there. So he's able, he could get back to the underground and to the kingdom of the ghouls if he wanted to. So um, so he eventually does find the gate and descends into the kingdom of the ghouls. So that brings us to our next kind of part of the story, which is the return of Randolph Carter to the ghoul kingdom. And, oh, one more thing. One thing he saw on this galley was a few ghouls are captured. There were some captured ghouls there that uh, this allows him to then kind of rally the ghouls in their kingdom by telling them about the capture of the ghoul, the, the capture of these ghouls by the moon beasts the, and how they should try to save it. So uh, Carter has this integral role now in rallying the ghouls the same way he sort of kind of rallied the cats earlier. It's the second time he gets to kind of play general here. And it's a really great scene where... They kind of also get the night gaunts to help because there seems to be some association with the ghouls and the night gaunts and they're going to do this dramatic rescue and uh, battle with the moon beasts and it's a it's just, like i said it's another time for carter to play general to rally this force to engage in this war so we get this wonderful battle with the the moon beast that goes on for a few um, pages 
they managed to scare off or kill the moon beasts and the, the men from Lang the, that are there. And they're going to destroy the boat. But then Carter's like, I might need this boat. So he talks the ghouls into, and the night gauns into letting him keep the ship intact. So we get a nice little battle here. I'm not going to, there's not too much to say about it, except this continuing theme throughout the dream quest of unknown Gadath of all these warring factions and all this conflict and slavery and just the chaos. I, I think it's reflective of the reality of the 18th century and the 20th century for that matter. Um, something about global centuries leading to, to uh, a lot of war. But um, I mean, if you've never studied 18th century like Atlantic history, it's pretty fascinating. But I mean, the constant warfare. I mean, that's why you had the French Revolution, right? Because the French were fighting wars against England for like a century off and on. Even more if you go back to the wars of Louis XIV. And so by, you know, by the end of the 19th century, France was just bankrupt. They just had no other, you know, the crown was totally um, without, without funds. Um, but it's because of constant warfare, right? Uh, just a few years of peace. You can't, it's actually hard to find like a year of peace in Europe in like the 18th century. Um, I think I read somewhere there isn't a single year without some war somewhere in Europe. And, and some of these wars went on for you know a decade at a time. Anyways, I, I think that's a subtext here. I might be pushing it, but I'm going to pretend it's an accurate interpretation. All right. Final thing I want to talk about today in this episode before we in the next final episode, we'll, we'll finish up this story. I want to talk about kind of the, the last segment of the story here. And it's kind of like I wrote it down as the aftermath of the battle. Right. So the first thing we do is we get the story of the captured ghouls, the ghouls that were rescued. We get a little bit of their story. Um, and they're able to mention this rock that the quote, they have touched at the jagged rock of the northern sea, which Ignorox, Mariner, Sun, and the ghouls had been, had there seen for the first time in real masters of the ship, being sickened despite their own callousness by such extremes of malign shapelessness and fearsome order, orders. There, too, we witnessed, were witnessed the nameless pastimes of the toad-like resident garrison. Those are the moon things. The moon beasts. So they, they came from there. They were there, and that's where they were captured. So... Basically, the decision is to carry on the attack and attack them here. So this is like the third time it's mentioned. It's mentioned in the frescoes. It's mentioned here. And it was mentioned when he originally passed it in the ship earlier. So they, they talked with the rescued ghouls about what's a good plan. And again, Carter gets to play general once again. And they say, here's how you want to attack them. And the night gods don't want to do it because the night gods don't want to fly over water, which is not. I guess we haven't really seen them fly over water quite yet near water, but not, not really over it. They don't want to f fly over wa water directly. The ghouls want the attack, but they can't really win without the night gaunts. So he basically, Carter's able to work out a deal in which um, they're going to get the night gaunts help and the ghouls can, ghouls can, can get, can attack this base of the, of the moon beast and the, and the men from Lang. Now, it's a little bit funny here. There, there's a lot of ridiculous moments here. This is one of them. Is part of the deal was, okay, night gaunts, you don't have to fly. You, we'll teach you how to use the oars. So uh, these night gaunts, these blind night gaunts are rowing, I guess, to get the ship to this, to this rock, to this uh, um, location. 
But he finally uh, convinces them to do this. And then three days later, they, they leave. They prepare for a while and they leave for this, to carry on this attack, to continue on this war with uh, the moon things. The moon beasts. And I guess that's it for today. I actually think, although a lot of this is adventure and war and, and stuff like that, especially the second half of the stuff we talked about today, but the first part of the story, of the, or this week's, this part of the story, this quarter, this third quarter of the story, is the is the stuff about New England, the stuff about the Anglo-American connection, the stuff with Karanis. Uh, we get some kind of the racial politics too with these kind of different, the men from Lang and the men of Ignac. All that, there's really a lot about race going on in the backdrop of the story. So, you know, I've, I've had this conversation. I think I probably said something like this once, like, oh, you know, because I didn't really know the Dream One stories very well. I just sort of assumed, because I read a few of them, I just assumed they were like fantasy stories, like Dunsany style fantasy stories. To some degree, that's true. But I would study, like, you read Dunwich Horror, or you read Call of Cthulhu, and you're like, oh, Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and you're like, oh, race is such a big theme of these, right? The horror stuff. You read it, and you're like, race is such a strong theme here. It's hard to avoid. But, you know, you kind of think, well, the Dream One stories, they're just separate. They're not part of that. They're, they're not kind of corrupted. They're not tainted the same way some of these other horror stories are, right? So this is part of, I think, the compartmentalizing of, of our attitude about Lovecraft's racism. Um, I know I mentioned this before, but there are people who say, you know, yeah, he was racist, but just of his time. I say, sure, but... It's, that's all the more reason to analyze it and, and understand it deeply because if it is of its time, that's relevant to understanding the historical context of the story. The other kind of response is, well, it's it's minor. It's on the surface or it's on the sub. It's just little references here. It's like the cat in Rats on the Wall, the name of the cat or that one scene in Herbert West Reanimator. It's here or there. Yeah, he's obsessed a little bit with, with genealogy, but it's not really racial. You kind of get that kind of argument. You know, and I don't think that's true at all. I think race just runs through everything. And then you get this idea, well, it's not in all the stories. I guess that's the, the biggest concession you'll hear from, like, the Lovecraft defenders. It's like, oh, there's a lot of stories where it's not a big deal. And the Dreamlands come up, right? But if you read Dreamcrest 1, Kanon Kadat, it's all about race. You know, throughout. It's obsessed with race. I mean, the way these people are described, like, by their physical features, right? They're divided up by physical features. Um, and then you have this race, these race wars going on throughout the dreamlands. It's like, a, it looks actually, it sounds like a pretty horrible place to live. Um, even like, uh, Sarnath, right. And the people of Ib, you know, constant fighting and war going on in these, in these dreamlands. But, you know, I don't know why people keep wanting to go there. seems our world is not much better. Maybe Karanis is right. Just stop trying to find a better world like out there and in your dreams just you know find one in your own memories uh, i think there's another option too like we can actually make our world better we don't have to dream and we don't have to be nostalgic but um but that's not really an option we're given in this story or pretty much in any of lovecraft stories unfortunately so um next episode i'll finish up uh, my thoughts on Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. It'll be uh, the attack on the rock all the way up to the climax and Carter's awakening. Um, so we'll, that'll be coming up. So 
Um, as always, thanks for, for listening. Um, now, yeah, this is the last, that'll be the last episode drawn from this new annotated Lovecraft Beyond Arkham anthology. So I get to kind of pack this one up. Um, then we'll be just sticking with the, 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 the original Lovecraft, new, new annotated Lovecraft anthology, the first one that was published, um, which has all his later stories, except for a few minor ones. So um, that's, I guess, notable. Um, I get to put this book away. But it's a great one. I really do urge Lovecraft fans to not just get that first anthology, get the second one, because so many great stories are in here. Um, so some of my favorite, Rats on the Wall, Cats of Luther I love, um, Arthur German is one of my favorite, From Beyond is good, Quest of Irion, underrated, underappreciated. Um, yeah, all this, most of the stories you actually need to read to understand Dream Quest of Unknown Kadathar in here, actually. So, anyways, get it if you haven't already got it, um, but I'll be putting it away shortly after I record the next episode. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be it for now. Uh, again, this is a rich story, deep story. If there's anything I'm missing, there probably is a lot I'm missing, a lot of points I, I didn't reference. Not maybe because I didn't forget them, I just, you know, skipped over them for time. But if there's anything I really, you really think I need to grapple with or I seem to be missing about this story, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can leave a comment. Although I'm having difficulty reading the comments, it seems I need an app. I don't have an app on my phone for that. But um, but anyways, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time as I complete up the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Thanks for listening. Yeah.